Well, every pastor, every evangelist, every missionary, every person that's been called to vocational ministry has a story. Now, what I mean is that everyone who has gone into full-time missionary or even part-time ministry has a story about how God did that, how God called them to serve. One such story that you may be familiar with that's been used many times is a story of Martin Luther, the German monk who turned reformer. It was 1505, and Luther had just received his master's degree. And he was deciding uh, what to do next, and so he, he started taking classes in law. And so after a, a, a few months of studying law, he decided he would go home uh, about 50 miles away to visit his family. And along the way home, he encountered a violent thunderstorm. It was so powerful that Luther was convinced that it was God giving his judgment on to Martin Luther. And so frightened, he tried to find shelter Somewhere, and the only thing he could find was a, a, a big piece of granite. And so he clung to the rock, and he said, Help me, St. Anne, and I will become a monk. A biographer of, of Luther put it this way, God kept his vows, and Luther kept his. Luther made it through the thunderstorm, went back to where he was studying, and did what all of us would do. He threw a party for his friends. But at the party or after the party, he gave away all of his law books, all of the law regalia, everything that had to do with law, and he immediately went into studying at uh, the monkery? Is that even a word? Monastery, thank you, monastery. Studied at the monastery. Now, you may wonder why he said, help me, St. Anne. Well, St. Anne was the patron saint in the Catholic Church of miners, not of miners, but of like miners, like coal miners, people who dig in the ground. And Luther's father owned a copper mine. So St. Anne was a a very important person uh, in the life of the Luther family. Now, his story is dramatic. And if you know anything else about Martin Luther, you know that his story only got more dramatic as time went on. But his calling was certainly something to be uh, remembered. It's dramatic. Uh, But stories abound uh, of men and women who God first saved and then called into ministry. Every story is a miracle, to be honest with you. How, How someone could be taken from an enemy of God, brought into God's family, and then say, you know what, give up all of your aspirations, give up all of your hopes, and serve me with your life. There are some, though, that are more dramatic than others. I have a good friend who was involved in organized crime, and you may have heard this story from me, uh, as a teenager and into his, his early 20s. Um, in the 1970s in New York City, it was a family tradition, you could say. Well, when my friend was 23 years old, he was convicted of first-degree murder. Now, the truth is, he never murdered anybody, but he looked really guilty, and he was convicted. And he did some bad stuff, too, along the way that helped the jury to convict him. And so he was sent away to prison. And and after a few years in prison, it was during that time that he was convicted of his sin. And he recognized that that if he were to die right then, he would spend eternity in hell apart from the the grace and love and mercy of God. And so he, he got on his knees and he trusted in Christ. And then for the next decade or two, he spent 23 hours a day in his cell. 
And so one day in, in class, I asked him, I said, man, how do you know so much about the Bible? Like, he, he knew stuff that, that, that I should have known, but I didn't. And so he said, Ryan, you got to understand something. I'm in my cell for 23 hours a day. There is nothing else to do but read. And so he would read his Bible. And his family would send him books. And the books were books on theology and doctrine and Bible commentaries. And he devoured those books. He was let out of prison. He moved across the country. And then a few years after that, became a pastor of a church. And he's serving faithfully to this day. Now, my story it's far less dramatic than that. I, I never went to prison. I probably should have a few times, but I, I never went to prison. I, ne- I never did anything that's as bad as my friend did. But the truth is that I had a calling on my life, and I ran from it. In fact, I, I tried to do as many things as I could to get away from it. I tried everything else to run from the call. And it's funny, years later, I speak with these older men, men who are fathers to me in the faith, and they say, well, we knew what you were going to do. We knew it all along. We knew that you would be serving. We, we knew that. I said, really? 18, 18-year-old Ryan doing this? Oh, yeah. We saw it. Apparently, I was one of the last ones to see that because I kept running from it. I, I, I had the sense that, that, that I needed to try everything else to get out of this. And I kept running and running and running until I could run no longer. Well, this morning in our text, Paul talks not about the story of his calling. You can see that in Acts chapter 19. But he continues to build his case for caring for weaker brothers and sisters in the faith. And then he defends his rights, his calling, while saying he's choosing not to exercise those. So this morning, these four verses are, are, are heavy in the calling of someone in ministry. And so the first thing that we see in this text is that Paul emphasizes the calling that he has. So far in chapters 8 and chapters nine, or chapter 9, uh, Paul has been making the argument that his calling is from God, not from the church. And we, we spoke about that a few weeks ago, that, that when a church needs a pastor, they, they build a search committee. They, they gather people from different demographics of the church, and the search committee meets, and, sit, and they say, well, what do we want uh, to find in a pastor? But the truth is, is that no matter how godly those search committee members are, it is not up to them who comes to be the pastor of a church. If you have faith in the sovereignty of God, you know that God is guiding that search committee along the way, even if, even if the pastor ends up being a failure. Could God have prevented that from happening? 100% absolutely. And yet he chose not to. And you ask, why? Because all of it, all of the things that happen are done for the glory of God, even when it seems to us as something bad. And so Paul is saying that it is not the church that gives me the calling to be a pastor. It is not a committee. It is not a group of elders. It is not another pastor. It is God and God alone. And so Paul says, look, God's called me to this, and I've put the hours in. I've served. I've planted. I've done all of those things that a church planting missionary pastor does And then he reminds the Corinthian church that he has chosen not to be paid by them because he doesn't want anyone thinking he's serving for a paycheck. 
His point is that, that the gospel is the most important thing, and he doesn't want anything, whether it be money or his diet, to block someone from hearing the gospel and growing in their faith, even if that means foregoing a salary. His fear is that somehow someone will believe that Paul is abusing his status in order to gain wealth. And he says earlier in this chapter that he will give up anything. I will give up anything if it prevents someone from growing in their faith and hearing the gospel. If eating meat causes my brother to stumble, I won't eat it anymore. Remember, though, that Paul has every right to be paid. A worker is worth his wage. It's moral, it's ethical, and it's even spiritual to pay someone for the work that they do. Especially if it means that they're limited in their income and making it another way. I mentioned this last week, and not all churches can do this. Most, the average size church is 75 in the United States, so barely able to pay for a full-time uh, pastor position. But I believe that churches are better off if they can afford it. And the reason why is that, that the pastors or the staff members don't have to worry about where the next meal comes from so that we can spend all of our time worrying about the spiritual state of the people who are under our care. A hungry shepherd doesn't make a very good shepherd. And let's be honest, and this is not being trite, but a hungry shepherd starts seeing the sheep as dinner. And Paul's saying that, that that shouldn't be the case, and I agree with him. I think that a, a staff or a pastors or people who devote their lives to the work of ministry, missionaries, evangelists, church planners, parachurch employees, I, I, worker is worth their wage. And this is Paul's argument, and it makes sense. He deserves to be paid. It's his right, really. But he's chosen to set that aside so that he can be a blessing to others, especially to those who are new in the faith. Now look at verse 15. After arguing that he has rights, he says, but I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any provision. He continues to remind the church that he has given up those rights, those privileges, for their sake. He's saying, look, I can make enough money to survive by making tents. I can do those things on the side. It's not ideal. I'm not ever going to be comfortable there will be days where I'll have to worry where the next meal's coming from. But I would rather do that than put a burden on someone else or prevent someone else from hearing the truth of the gospel. That matters so much more. Now this certainly flies in the face of modern day culture, doesn't it? The focus of our culture is my rights. It's all about my rights. Now, it's a positive in a lot of ways. We're, we're grateful that we live in a place where we have a, a freedom of speech, where we can say what we want so long as it doesn't harm someone else. We're good with that. We, we appreciate having the freedom to protect our families. We're grateful for that. Uh, we, we're grateful that we don't have to house soldiers during a time of war. We're grateful for that. Forever grateful that we live in a place where we can do these things. But what happens when your rights impede the growth of another believer? And that's what Paul is facing. Paul says in chapter 8 that he would stop eating meat sacrificed to idols. It didn't bother him, but he had every right to eat it. 
but he stopped because some weaker brothers or sisters were bothered by it. He sacrificed his rights for the sake of others. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Is that what not what Paul's doing in chapters 8 and 9? He's imitating Christ's sacrificial love. His command to the Corinthian church is they should do the same. Quit seeing everything as your right to do something. Yes, you legally may have a right to do it, but instead view your rights as something to lay aside in order to build up the body. Paul chose not to exercise his rights because of what we see in the second half of verse 15. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. Now he gives two reasons why he's refused to accept financial support from the Corinthians. First, he didn't want, his lo- he didn't want to lose his reward for preaching the gospel. There's nothing wrong, and hear me on this, there's nothing wrong with wealth. There's nothing wrong with great wealth. I am glad, I'm, I'm happy for people who can make lots and lots of money for, for a variety of reasons. From a Christian perspective, I'm grateful because that means you can give more of it away, right? That, that you see a need, you can meet those needs better if you have the financial means to do it. You could support ministries, you could, you could support churches, and, and you could support all of those things that, that, that we think are great things in the world today. There's nothing wrong with wealth if it's used for God's glory and if it's deserved, but there is something to be said for having something, wealth, talent, energy, intellect, and then giving it away. And that's what Paul's doing. All of those things Paul has, and he's giving it away. The second reason is that Paul wanted nothing to hinder his reaching the lost with the gospel. There have always been abusers in churches, and money is often at the root of those abuses. Even today, we see this happening. Most churches are not faced with whether or not we should eat meat sacrificed to idols. I've never heard that. And most churches have a desire to pay their pastors or their staff members. That that is a desire that churches have. But there are some who've used ministry to line their own wallet. And all it takes is a couple seconds to flip on a TV channel and you can see those. Kenneth Copeland, the richest pastor, and I use that in quotes, in the United States, has a net worth of $300 million. Now, I can tell you this, if I had $300 million, I wouldn't take a salary from the church. I can promise you that. If I had $300 million, I'm not asking anybody for more money. But those private jets are expensive. During the early stages of COVID, during the shutdown, He told his viewers on TV that they needed to keep sending money in even if they lost their jobs. He's the one that says, I don't go on airplanes. I have to fly private because if I go on a commercial plane, there's a bunch of demons around me, so I can't do anything. Now, we may not see the effect that that this has on our generation until many years has passed, but I know people who've given up on Christianity because they've seen these con men abuse the name of Christ and abuse the people of Christ for financial gain. Paul is absolutely right to be careful about where he made his income. He knew that great damage could be done if people saw him as nothing more than a money grabber. Again, he has the right to be compensated for all the work he did, but he chose to receive nothing from the Corinthians. Now, to cynical people reading this, we may 
uh, say, well, it sounds like he's trying to get the church to pony up. He's trying to throw a guilt trip on the, the Corinthian church, trying to get them to give some more money to him. Hey, look, I've done all this work and you, I, I've taken nothing. Right? It's kind of a way that we would do, hey, you need, you, you need to give me some cash. But that's not what Paul's doing. In 1 Thessalonians 2.9, he writes this, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. 2 Thessalonians 3.8, Paul says this, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, it was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Paul didn't even want a free meal. That's how hardcore this guy was. He worked for everything that he got, and he even worked for free. Paul says that he would rather be dead than have anyone think that he preached and served in ministry for monetary gain. Charles Spurgeon, uh, pastor in, in London, England in the late 1800s, um, was known as the Prince of Preachers, and he, he was not very highly educated at all, started preaching at 14 or 15, and he grew uh, to be a, a man of great influence, and, and pastors from all over the world would come and be trained under Charles Spurgeon. And he says this to his students. I will only add that I serve a good master and am so sure that he will provide for me that I never thought it worth my while to be scrapping and hoarding for myself. When I gave myself up at first to be his minister, I never expected anything beyond food and raiment. And when my income was 45 pounds a year, I was heartily content and never thought of a need without having it supplied. It is with me much the same now. I have all and abound I have only one grievance, and that is being asked for loans and gifts of money when I have none to spare. Under the impression that I am very, a very rich man, many hunt me perpetually. But I wish these borrowers and beggars to know that I am not rich. They argue that a man must be rich if he gives away such large sums. But in my case, this is just a reason why I'm not rich. When I have a spare five pounds, the college or orphanage or coal portage or something else requires it, and away it goes. I could very comfortably do with much more. Oh, that I could do more for Christ and more for the poor. For these I have turned beggar before now and shall not be ashamed to beg again. The outside world cannot understand that a man should be moved by any motive except that of personal gain. But if they knew the power of love to Jesus, they would understand that to the lover of the Savior, greed of wealth is vile as the dust beneath his feet." Spurgeon's statement is in line with what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. And may it be said of every person who stands behind this pulpit that we are not doing this for money. We're not doing this for power. We're not doing this for wealth. We are doing this because God has called us and put this burden on us to proclaim the gospel to you and to everyone else in our community. This is our calling. We have nothing to boast about outside of what God has done in and through us. Now look at verse 16. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. 
Paul says that in Galatians 1 that he was set apart before he had even been born and he was called by God, by his grace. This is just like Jeremiah in chapter 1 of Jeremiah and John the Baptist in Luke 1. Christian, it is by grace that you have been saved, not of anything that you've done. Why? So that you can't boast about it. And then I can't boast about it. You can't boast about how smart you were in choosing Jesus over all the other religious figures. You can't boast in how spiritual you were in choosing Jesus. You can't do anything apart from the grace of God. We have nothing to boast about except the grace of God in us. For Paul, there's no room to boast in his calling because he was compelled to do it. That's his word. Acts 19 tells his story of how Saul became Paul. Saul uh, persecuted the church. He hated followers of Christ. But Paul, changed forever by the grace of God, goes on to write half of the New Testament, plant churches, and outside of Jesus is the most influential follower of Christ that there's ever been. Paul was well known in the Christian world. He was influential. And he was compelled to do it. Today we have a an unfortunate ministry celebrity complex. There are those who are just gifted, gifted communicators, brilliant guys, charismatic speakers, uh, dynamic leaders. A and we, we pay money to go hear these guys preach at conferences and write books. And we follow their podcast and, and we listen to all of our heroes, as, as all industries have, but we have our heroes. But Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, knew what uh, ministry influence and leadership could become. He was warning himself and to every pastor or person of influence, something that we all need to hear, it's not about us. In fact, nothing that we have is ours anyway. Everything that we have, all of the gifts, all of the money, all of the talents, all of the intellect, all of the charisma, all of it belongs to God no matter what anyway. And God's given us those gifts, not so that we can hoard them, not so that we can build a library full of books that we've written, not because uh, that we can have a, a YouTube following of millions. No, he's given us these gifts so that we can give them away. But there are some who are drawn to ministry because the respect and the adulation are addicting. As time passes, the role of the pastor is less and less respected in the community. It used to be that the pastor was one of the the cornerstones of a town, right? Some of you may remember those days. The pastor of the First Baptist Church, wherever it may be, that, ooh, that, the, the, the mayor goes to talk to him. It's not so much today. But it's still around a little bit. Now hear me. Though Paul served in ministry and though he's writing from that perspective, it does not mean that ministry is more important than anything else. You do what you do because God has called you to do it. Whether that's a pastor, a doctor, a plumber, a truck driver, a musician, a sandwich maker, no matter what it is, no matter what God has called you to do, God has put you there for a specific reason, and that's to bring him glory. So please don't think that, that, that I'm saying that this is only for pastors or only for people in ministry. It's not true. You are all missionaries where you are planted. 
Now there is though, and Paul would probably agree, there is a uniqueness to what ministries do, to what pastors, church planters, missionaries do. On August 7th, 1865, former slave Jordan Anderson dictated a letter to his former owner, Colonel Patrick Anderson. Now after 30 years of being in bondage, Jordan Anderson was being asked by his former slave master to come back to the farm, not far from Chattanooga, and to serve. The farm had had gotten bad and Jordan was the only one who knew what to do. And so Jordan dictated a letter to be written And the letter is is genius. If you get a chance, please read this letter from Jordan Anderson. He he wrote back to the colonel after some niceties and said, um, you know, questioning why the colonel shot at him twice. That's a good question to ask. Um, In this letter, he said, I will consider coming back to you if you pay me for the 30 years that I worked for you, plus interest. And so he detailed a list of all the things that he had done while he was enslaved and came up with this number in 1865 that, you know, over $10,000. And he said, you pay me that, then I may consider coming back to work for you for a salary. That's not the point of the letter. It's encouraging. Read it. it it's, it's entertaining. And it was published throughout newspapers in the 1860s. Um, but in this letter, something stood out to me. As Jordan was writing about his family life and talking about his wife and his children, he has a son named Grundy, and he wrote this to his former slave owner. He said this, the teacher says Grundy has a head for a preacher. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, that's a giant head, right? It's huge, right? No, that's, that's not what he means. What he means in the 1860s was that if someone had some intellect, Ministry was a natural progression because that's why a lot of the colleges that we now know to be historical were based on training pastors, training people for ministry. He meant his son was smart, so it was assumed that smart people go into ministry. Very few think of that today. But God has not changed, has he? God calls and equips those for ministry the same way today he did 2,000 years ago. When one feels this calling, they can run, but they cannot hide from the calling of God on their life. I want to share another quote from Spurgeon. He says this, The first sign of the heavenly calling is an intense, all-absorbing desire for the work of ministry. And then Spurgeon would often advise his students to, to try everything else before committing to ministry. And he wrote this, Do not enter the ministry if you can help it. Do not enter ministry if you can help it. In other words, do everything else, try everything else, and when you realize that you can't do those things, then run after ministry and go. There is a burning that someone just can't run from. Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Over the last year here at this church, we've had to make decisions as elders, uh, and I'm eternally grateful that we have elders, that it's not resting on the staff members, but we've had to make decisions as elders that um, not everyone agreed with. And and the truth is, no matter what direction the the leadership would go, there would always be people who disagreed. Choose this way, you got these people mad. You choose this way, you got these people mad. And it's understood. Never seen it like this, and the last 15 months has been strange, or 18 months, whatever it's been, has been strange for all of us. If you own a business, you know this, you face the same dilemma, uh, but you keep the masses happy to keep operating. Customer's always right. The church leadership, though, is forced to make tough decisions, and the way some respond is by leaving or withholding their offering until things are done the way they want. 
Now, I'm not saying that to convict anybody. I know nothing about finances, but I can say this. There is a weight that has been put on the back of every person in ministry for the last year and a half that I'm not sure we've ever experienced before. So you may be thinking, well, then what in the world are you doing here? It's a good question. <laughs> I think every pastor has asked them that, themselves that same question over the last year and a half. Is there anything else that I can do? Because right now I'd love to just open those doors and run and just say, see you later, guys. Every single pastor I've talked to has had that thought. So why do we do it? We run, we run away from the calling, but ultimately I go back to Paul's statement, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. Paul is saying that if he didn't preach the gospel, he would have to deal with God. And the truth of the matter is, is that if I didn't do what I'm doing right now, I'd have to answer to God for that. God put a calling on my life, and if I don't obey that calling, I've got God to deal with. Paul does all that he does because his primary aim is to preach the gospel. So far, there's been an emphasis of the calling and an emphasis on correct boasting of that calling. Now in verse 17, we'll see stewardship of that calling. Look at this verse. For if I do this of my own will, I will have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with the stewardship. If Paul's ministry were voluntary, meaning that he just chose to do it on his own, he would have something to boast about. But he didn't. Paul didn't call himself to ministry, so he has nothing to boast about. Now again, that thinking about that celebrity pastor mindset, there is a, a pull for most pastors to increase their platform. In your job, I want you to think about this. Whatever career that you have, um, most people, their goal is to increase or to move up or to, to aim. If you're in the military, you want to go up in your rank. If you're in a business, you want to grow your business. You want to open up another store. If you're in a, in a factory, you want to move up to the, the director or the supervisor. We all want to advance. We all want better. We all want to, to grow in that sense. But here's the problem in churches. I've yet to find a quantifiable way to measure success in ministry. Some would say attendance. It's an easy number. People do that, and so pastors will chase after attendance. Do anything that they can just to get more people to come into the church. That's not me. Some would say increase budget. Do anything you can to get the people with money to give more money. It's not me either. Some will say making a name for yourself, writing books, speaking at conferences. But the reality is this, no matter what gifts God has given to a pastor or to you, those don't belong to you. Everything that you have has been given to you as a gift. You are a steward. You are a caretaker of those gifts. You don't own them. Every person who preaches or who leads in a church will seek to improve his ability, but to serve well in ministry is based entirely on God's calling on our life. God has called us. God has given us the tools to do what he's called us to do. And according to Paul in verse 18, there should be a reward for this work. What then is my reward? That in preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Paul was under compulsion to preach. He was not under compulsion to be paid for it. Paul was free to receive payment, 
but he chose not to. See, his reward was not in being famous, not in being known, not in being wealthy. His reward was something that no person could give to him. His reward was his obedience to preach the gospel faithfully. Now we've spent a considerable amount of time over the last few weeks working through these these passages from Paul. Uh, Some pastors will preach them all as one, chapter 8 and chapter 9, even together. Uh, But I wanted to break it down because I think Paul emphasizes so much here that we need to kind of camp out. But I want to leave this morning with a few brief thoughts of what's happening here. As Christians, our rights must be surrendered for the, right, for the benefit of others. Paul talks about money and food, but I honestly think it could be anything, really. Every relationship works this way. A healthy marriage is one where one spouse constantly sets aside their preferences for the sake and the benefit of the other. Every friendship works the same way. Every family, and the church is a family. We are a, a gathered family of believers, and this is how we work. But uh, we all have preferences and opinions and our thoughts and our preferences and opinions often clash with the same of others. So what do we do then? What do we do? The more mature believer should set aside what he or she wants if it means that the other Christian will be more encouraged or discipled better. Our goal is to build up the body, not to win debates. Paul said that if something got in the way of the gospel moving or discipleship happening, he would stop doing it. But we value our rights, or at least what we want so much, don't we? Whenever there's a conflict between two people, the root of that conflict often, almost all the time, the root of that conflict is the fact that we're not willing to budge. I say this, and my wife says this, she's wrong, I'm right, my wife thinks she's right, and I'm wrong, what do we do now? I'm not budging because I'm right. What happens then? That marriage is not going to get better. A healthy marriage, and I've watched this, I've seen it, and I'm not speaking on my behalf because certainly my marriage is just as bad as everybody else's, so I'm with you on that. But what I've seen with good marriages and marriages that I look up to, specifically those who are in their 70s and 80s and 90s, marriages that have lasted, marriages that have stood the test of time, the thing that I see as successful is a lack of that digging in heels. Friendships that last a long time, the same thing. If if all friends do is fight about what's right and what's wrong, they're not going to be friends for very long. And we've all seen churches that have split apart because of this, where people refuse to budge. They refuse to give an inch. That even sounds negative, but the truth is, that's a positive thing. To give up what I want to benefit someone else, that is the Christian life. That is exactly what Paul's saying that we ought to be doing. And those desires must be surrendered. Why? Because of the gospel. But how often we forget or ignore that in favor of pushing our thoughts and desires over what someone else needs. I have a political history, but I'm not not tied to a political party or a political preference or a political ideology. And I can tell you, every four years, I pray. Lord, let this get over with quickly. I pray, I say, 
because I know what's going to happen. In every church all over the country, it becomes a battle. A Christian couldn't vote for that guy. Wait, what? A Christian couldn't believe in that. We've been labeled as evangelicals, which used to mean people who valued the gospel. And if you ask what an evangelical is now, most people are going to say it's a political block. Those outside of these walls see us, evangelicals, as being nasty to one another simply because we have different ideas on how to govern or how to run a church or, or to how to behave as believers. Church, we cannot let the, our gospel witness be hindered. We cannot let our preferences, no matter what they are, mess with our witness for Christ. And we see it. We know it. We're guilty of it. I'm guilty of it. And I've talked to people. I've talked to people who've given up on the church. They say they haven't given up on Christianity, but they say I've given up on the church, and I ask why. And they say because the church is often more of a political group than it is a spiritual group. Let that not be so. But it's not even just with those outside the church. Right now, as I mentioned earlier, the, the entire Southern Baptist Convention is a mess right now. Lines have been drawn, uh, and to be honest, I'm not sure that there's much of a future the way that things are going right now for the SBC. I, I anticipate, hopefully not, but I anticipate major splits. But like Paul, we have a serious calling. Our command is to go into all the world and preach the gospel of all nations. We are to be gospel witnesses to everyone we encounter. For Paul, taking a salary from the Corinthians was a stumbling block to some. So he said, I'm going to take that stumbling block away. I'm going to get rid of it. I'm not going to prevent someone from hearing the gospel and growing in their faith. The spiritual health of the people was more important than being able to get a meal or to be paid for his work. Now, we don't talk at all about eating meat sacrificed to idols. And most of you would prefer that your staff is paid so that you can access us at all times. But what about the other things in our lives? those preferences that we've elevated to essential issues, will our preferences rise to the highest level, separating us from our brothers and sisters in Christ? I pray that it doesn't. Will our preferences damage our testimony with outsiders? Or will we together in unison, people from different backgrounds, people from different uh, areas, even people from different ethnicities, as we gather together, will we be unified and say, no, those things don't matter. The gospel is what matters most. The gospel is the reason why we exist. The gospel is the reason why we are here today. That should be our calling. Our calling by God is to be proclaimers of the gospel. To remove all of those stumbling blocks, to remove everything else that could prevent someone from hearing the truth that Jesus died for our sins. And through his blood, we are promised a future and a hope and a joy that cannot be taken away. This is God's word. This is the truth that we gather together, not to vote together, not even to agree together. I don't think we need to agree on stuff, anything, except the gospel. Accept those essentials. Everything else is secondary. We exist to proclaim the gospel. Would you pray with me?